I would like you to open your Bibles up to the book of Daniel. The, the book of Daniel, last, the last four or five weeks we spent on Ezekiel, and Ezekiel and Jeremiah were two that went together because Jeremiah was in Judah at the same time that Ezekiel was in Babylon. And there were many truths that we spoke about with both of them, ending with uh, the restoration of the nation of Israel. And now we come to the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel fits into this era that we've been talking about, but as we conclude it, and I may not spend, I may not even go more than one week on it. We'll see how today goes. It'll usher us into the fourth era in the Old Testament. And with that, then we can... Uh, wrap up the Old Testament in a fairly short period of time. If you look at that, if you look at the board, you can see where we've come. We have talked about the era here, which is called era formation, which we started out with creation, and then we said when Abraham was given a promise of a country that or a, a people, it had to be people, laws, and land. Remember. And then we saw that happen. His seed was multiplied. They were given a constitution, which is the law. And then they were given land. Had they been faithful to that, we wouldn't be reading a lot of things we're reading in the prophets. But they chose to go their own way rather than to follow the Lord. They ignored the priests and all that was going on. And so God sent in judges to chasten them deliver them, then chasten them and deliver them, and on and on. They finally said, the problem here is we need a king. So God gave them a start of kings. It went with Saul, then it went with David, then it went with Solomon. And that still wasn't enough. They continued to be hard-headed, rebellious, stiff-necked. And so even as a united nation with all of their people together in all of the land, and greatly blessed, they still continued in their stubborn ways. And so God had to correct them and discipline them. And we went through a period of many different kings. The country, the nation was divided. And then finally, after the ten tribes were carried off into Assyria for captivity, Judah finally was judged and destroyed. And you come up to 586 B.C., which is over here, which Jeremiah and Ezekiel fitted into that category and now they're all historically at this point they're all in Babylon and in Babylon we have one prophet in particular that stands out and there are some very valuable lessons to be learned in the book of Daniel Daniel falls into this same category he's in Babylon he actually arrived in Babylon before uh, Ezekiel did and while he is there, God gives us a testimony of a man greatly blessed of the Lord. And some valuable lessons can be learned from it, both prophetically as well as morally and ethically and so forth. And if you look at the chart here, I happen to put this one up. It shows us where we're at. We've covered all these books. We haven't covered Psalms and Proverbs, but I taught those in the past. And we didn't get into... Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and Lamentation. And we skipped Job. But all these I've covered 
in one way or another in years past. But we're now in a period here between this 70 years as the Babylonian captivity, and you'll notice this is Daniel and Ezekiel here, that after this we, we move into that last era whereby they are allowed to go back to the land and rebuild their city, but they don't become a sovereign nation until 1948. So I would like to introduce the book of Daniel. Thanks, son. I'd like to introduce the book of Daniel and point out some important things and, and talk about the two major themes that are in the book. And then I'll, I'm going to pray as to whether or not we continue on in Daniel or move on. I'd like to spend more time in the book of Proverbs because I think there's some very um, important practical truths for us to apply to our lives. But the Daniel does also. So I'm just going to be open to the Holy Spirit. So the book of Daniel, first of all, let's talk about the date of the book of Daniel. And this is very significant. It's a lot more important than what you may realize. That the book of Daniel, I believe, was written by Daniel. And it was written, at, at, written toward the end of his life. He went to, to Babylon in 605. He was probably about 15 years old. And in 536 B.C., we know this from the book, that this is toward the end when he was there. And he, um, at that time, wrote the book and sealed it up. There are four places in the book, without looking at them all, that says he wrote the book. Chapter 12 says God told him to seal up the book till the end times. And so it's very significant that I believe, and, and we as a church should believe, that he wrote the book. And the reason why this is important is because the liberal critics of the Bible scoff at this. They don't believe in the book of Daniel at all. They look at the book of Daniel and they say it's nothing but a bunch of myths and stories. I mean, the a whole idea of Daniel being delivered from the lion's den. And the whole idea of, of Daniel being given the kind of wisdom to whereby he could talk about the rise and fall of world powers. The very fact that he could be given the wisdom to be able to tell King Nebuchadnezzar when he said that he had dreamed the dream and he called all of his wise men and asked them for the interpretation. They said, no problem, King, tell us the, the dream. And he said, no, I want you to tell me what I dreamed and then I want you to tell me what it means. And they said, you can't do that. Nobody can do that. No human being can tell you what you dreamed last night. I mean, think about it, for example. Anybody dream anything last night? <laughs> you didn't? All right. Well, turn to your mom, Teresa, and ask her, Mom, what did I dream? Now, assuming you didn't tell her. <laughs> it'd be a... <laughs> it'd be a... You know, I mean, the, the critics laugh at that and say, Oh, that's impossible. Because they've brought God down to our level rather than recognize that he's much higher than us and his ways are much higher than our ways. and the whole nation all of the wise men both righteous and unrighteous were to be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and God gave wisdom to Daniel to tell him what the dream was and what the dream meant and then he was elevated to the highest levels he was third in power in Babylon and they just can't fathom that 
They can't fathom that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could be put into a burning, fiery furnace, and there is Jesus in the midst of the fire delivering them out of it. And then they have a really rough time with the fact that biblical prophecies are brought forth by Daniel. And of course, if you reject that, that, that this plays out more than what people realize today. Because, like I said last week, concerning Israel as a nation being brought back to her land. I happen, my wife and I happen to watch um, a television show that we like. It's on Netflix. We don't have cable. And it's British. And it's kind of, in a way, it's not, it's not a historical, factual type thing. It's, you know, it's a mystery novel. But they take certain important historical truths and they build on that. And it'd be like Fiddler on the Roof. It was like a, a historical thing that occurred, but then they contrived the story of a, of a family. Well, it's kind of the same way. This guy's a, a detective. But last week we were watching one of the last ones that's on, and they were talking. They were showing in this the persecution of the Jews, and they were talking about Bellflower, and they were talking about the white paper, which limited the number of people to go into Palestine, 14,000, and how the, the British were working behind the scenes to destroy some of the Jewish ships that were going and bringing them into the land, and it was the British that were destroying these ships and trying to stop that from happening because of this white paper, and it showed some Saudis that were gathered together for a big meeting and the Zionists trying to blow up the meeting. And I thought to myself, you know, we live in America, and that means nothing to us, but it meant a lot to Europe. That was a big deal, and it doesn't mean much to us, but it did, it did to them. And so if the intellectual, liberal theologian and church member can get that out of their minds and just think that the book of Daniel is nothing but more like the book of Revelation. When I was growing up, I, I would ask questions about the book of Revelation. I was told by my parents and my others at the church that I went to, which was Methodist, oh, that's not for today. That doesn't mean anything. It's all symbolism. They just don't ignore it. It doesn't mean anything. That made me want to understand it more. <laughs> but it really plays into the in the ideology of a lot of things going on today. The church of our day, for the most the professing church, they don't believe in a person have, having the need to have a new heart. Now, Jeremiah and Ezekiel said, God said to, Ezekiel, or to Israel, I'm going to give you a new heart. They don't believe a man needs a new heart. They believe a man is, or a man and woman, is sinful and... Um, criminal because of their environment, their education, their upbringing. And so this is why you see socialism trying to be pumped down upon us because their attitude is, well, let's pump more money into the schools. Let's pump more money into the housing. Let's pump more money into things like the job market. Let, you know, I don't have a problem if you want to pay somebody 15 bucks to work at McDonald's, but I'd like a raise. We all would, wouldn't we? I mean, I'd like a hundred bucks an hour to teach school. I'll take it. But nobody's gonna nobody's gonna go to school because it's gonna cost so much. See, you start cranking the price up on everything. Nobody's gonna go to McDonald's because it's gonna cost so much. 
And it really burns me when I pull up the drive-in, drive-through, and you try to get change on something. They don't even know how to make change anymore. I mean, they really don't. You give them a ten-dollar bill, and maybe the, the you know your bill comes to like three dollars and twenty-seven cents. So you give them a, a ten and twenty-seven cents, and they almost got to call the manager over to help them. They're so befuddled they don't know what to do. And I want to say you need a raise. Well, you can, the old story we used there from Steveville years ago, you can take a pig, clean it up, perfume it, put a ribbon on its neck, and let it go, but it's still going to go back to the mire. It needs a different nature. It needs a new heart. And that is so true. And so what we've got today is the attitude is that there's no second coming of Christ. There's no millennium. There's no tribulation period there's no rapture even that's filtering into fundamentalist charismatic groups these things are not true and so we're in the millennium right now did you know that we're in the millennium right now and the problem is that world war one and world war war two just really blew their theories away but they believe that a man that all Men are God's children, and all of them just need to have some love and nurturing. I mean, that's why Obama has said we wouldn't have so much terrorism if we would just give jobs and money to our terrorists. That's the problem. They're sitting around bored thinking about, you know, how they need to blow us up. Listen, I don't want to make that my sermon, but that is the mentality of the professing church today. And it is because they've rejected books like Daniel. They don't believe that that's for today, just like they don't believe that the book of Revelation is for today. And so the date and authorship of Daniel is very significant. It is very important that we need to make a choice. I'm either going to believe it or I'm not going to believe it. There's either one way or the other. And if you don't want to believe it, go your own way. And then maybe after you hit your head against a stone wall enough time, you'll realize that there's a way that seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof is death. If men are so good at figuring out their own ways to live and plan their own lives, why is this world in such a mess today? And it is. Well, anyways, when it comes then to this area, they believe, the liberals believe, that this book was written by an anonymous author. It isn't Daniel. I don't know that they go so far to say Daniel's a fictitious character. Probably some of them might. But they just think that this book was written somewhere around the time maybe of the Maccabees, 167, one author said. And they don't believe in the prophecies and they don't believe in, um, they think these are just stories to encourage people to live moral, but they don't believe these things are true because they've denied the supernatural in the Bible. Well, two world wars and many other things have just proven over and over again the conservative position that's been taken on this book, one of those being the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, I happened to think about that when I was looking at this. I don't know that I've said much about the Dead Sea Scrolls through the years, but let me just mention this because well, you'll see why in a minute. The Dead Sea Scrolls, in 1946, in Palestine, not only were the Jews filtering back into that country, and it was under British rule at that time, 
but they also began great excavations, especially around the area of the Dead Sea. And the Quram cave scrolls were found, and this was very, a very significant find. It was found a period over 10 years. They consisted of two types of scrolls. Some of them were biblical. In fact, all of the Old Testament was found except for the book of Esther. But other than that, there were scrolls from every book of the Old Testament. Esther was exception. 40% of what they found was all scripture. And then 60% was other religious material written by a variety of different people. Some they might not really know who. And, and yet, even though it was giving um, traditional things and things that were going on at that time, they still confirmed over and over again back to the 40% that they had found uh, that they were following the scriptures, the Bible, and so forth. And of course, finding that set of uh, that all those scrolls and confirming it to be the same as the Old Testament, those would have been the scrolls, the same ones, not exact same ones, but the ones that were written that Jesus referred to and Paul referred to. They would have gone back because, you know, they date them, the people that have found them. They've been run through a series of tests and other things. They date them back to the 3rd century B.C., which goes way back beyond 167. But these were the writings that Jesus would have referred to when he referred to the scripture, as well as the apostles. And these things confirm the book of Daniel. I'll show you some pictures here. If you want to hit the light for me real quick, hon. This is a, the Dead Sea. Now, I'm not showing you all of Israel. I think you can remember you got the, the Sea of Galilee's up here, followed by the Jordan River. Here's Jericho, Jerusalem. Here's Masada. Then you have the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea. Here's the Mediterranean. And I just picked this one out because it has less things on it. Here are the caves that were found. There were several caves along the Dead Sea that found, and they contained uh, different um, pots and stuff that these were in. Some had been broken open. I didn't put pictures up here. Some of the scrolls looked like they were still intact, but how they were able to get to read them and the... the be, to be able to work with them is amazing. This is a, a room, I, I, this is probably pretty old, but it shows men that are sitting and studying these. These are the, scroll, um, the scrolls laid out that they have worked on to clean them up. And these travel around the country. They have come to the United States and been put on display, in, I know at least in Washington or New York. And these are some shots of the caves this would be some, for example, it's kind of hard to see the circles, but the circles are caves where they found these containers and these scrolls in 1946 to 56. They found them, brought them in, and began to work with them. And this is the book of Isaiah, just to give you an idea. Look at how well-preserved that is for something that's like 2,300 years old. That's amazingly preserved. That's just the book. That is just the book of Isaiah right there. So they have got these manuscripts. And like I said, every book of the Old Testament except for Esther. Esther is the only one that wasn't, wasn't in that book. But you've got Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel and so forth. And they agree with the Old Testament that we've got. Thank you. They agree with the Hebrew biblical text. 
And the Hebrew Bible coincides with what we have in the Old Testament. I used to have a Hebrew Bible. I sold it. But we had to study that many, many years ago was to uh, study the actual Hebrew language. It reads the opposite of ours. Instead of reading from, from uh, left to right, it reads from right to left. So it's a little bit different to work with. But in any case, these go way back. And they go way back beyond what the liberals want to say is the, uh, the date that they think some anonymous author came around and wrote the book of Daniel. But the Dead Sea Scrolls are one way that it just really proves and indicates that um, that's not true, that it was way back before that. The book itself says that Daniel was the author. Different places, Daniel 12 is one where Daniel's been told to record and write these things. And I think in Daniel 12:4, the statement he makes here is to him from the angel and says, but thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. Well, knowledge has been increased since Daniel's time. And many have run to and fro. And this, of course, Daniel 12, speaks about prophecies of the end times and the return of the Christ and so forth. It blends in with what Jesus taught as well as the book of Revelation. Matthew 9, or Daniel 9 and verse 2 is another place where it says, these oftentimes have dates with them. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahusuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in his desolations of, Jew of Jerusalem, and he set his face uh, to pray and seek the Lord. And there's a couple others that are a little bit better than that. But the point is, Daniel says he wrote the book. If you look over to Matthew 24 and verse 15, when Jesus quotes from Daniel, he gives us the truth that Daniel wrote it. Matthew 24, he's talking about the coming of the end, end time things. And in Matthew 24, start at verse 23, he said, if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not, for there shall arise false Christs, false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if they were possible, they should deceive the very elect. I am sorry, I got a few verses back. Verse 15, he says, um, And this gospel, verse 14, of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, now it's talking about Antichrist, spoken of by Daniel the prophet. See, he says he's relating back to the book of Daniel, and he says it was spoken of by Daniel the prophet. When you see Antichrist stand in the holy place, whosoever readeth, let him understand. So he's referring there to what occurred in the book of Daniel. Daniel's found in other books. The book of Ezekiel, we didn't read these. Well, maybe we did. But twice he said, for example, though Noah, Daniel, and Job were here, they could only save themselves by their own righteousness. Ezekiel knew Daniel. And at one point, Ezekiel made comment that 
he was talking um, about the king of Tyre, and he makes a comment that the king of Tyre had greater wisdom than Daniel. And of course, the king of Tyre, without getting into it, is talking about Satan. And so the, the point that's being made in that, if we were to delve into it, is that you've got God with his wisdom, and Satan was a wise character, a wise being. And he, and then next after him, Ezekiel says, comes Daniel. He acknowledges the great wisdom that Daniel had, and on and on. And of course, the book itself claims to be from the era of the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians because it's giving us that story not something that comes from another area. So I think the bottom line is either you believe the book of Daniel is true, if not, it's fraudulent, and if it's fraudulent, there's a whole lot of things that are fraudulent in the Bible. You've got to make a decision, a choice in your life. Am I going to believe and follow the Bible, or am I not? And that offends people. They want you to be wishy-washy. Like I shared last summer when I went to a uh, bed and breakfast in Pennsylvania, and they were like, half a dozen people on the deck of the porch and they found out I was a minister so they right away start telling me what's wrong with the Bible and why they didn't believe it. And one man after him telling me why that he felt the Bible was all full of contradiction and he didn't believe it and then he makes this statement you know he says well you believe you you believe the Bible's correct and you seek to live it and I don't. Do you believe therefore that I'm wrong? And I said yes. And and they all jerked. Didn't they, Bill? They just all went, like, nobody would do that. And Bill piped up and she said, he has a conviction about what he believes. That's Daniel. I mean, you, that's the point of the book of Daniel as we get into it. God wants you to find out what's right and take a stand for it. Not be wishy-washy. Don't be a follower. Get delivered of what people think and peer pressure. Don't fear men, fear God. Because one day you're going to have to stand before him and answer. And he's not going to take all this wishy-washy stuff that people sometimes follow. So, anyways, the, it's important to understand that the book of Daniel is a, is a scriptural book that we're to learn and understand and believe is true and follow. Now, it helps if you understand the two major themes that are in the book, so let me talk about that, because this is what's really important. If I choose to get into it, I'll choose maybe to, to get into some of these things. The, the purpose of the book of Daniel is the fact that Daniel lived and ministered in a city in Babylon, so it's assumed that he was ministering to the Jews that were in Babylon at that time. Not that it should be limited to that. All Israel and even Christians need to know and understand that. If you think about Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they've lost their city. They've lost their temple. They've lost everything. They were put on a 700-mile death march to get to Babylon. They didn't have Greyhound buses or carts to put these people on. Those that were weak, and those that were maybe elderly, and those that were feeble, if they died along the way, they died along the way. 700 miles they had to go from Judah to Babylon. That is 100 miles more than what it is from here to Atlanta, Georgia. 
Some of you, like the Kern family, you just got done coming back up from Florida. Do you remember Atlanta and that long drive to get home? Well, then add to it the distance from here to Columbus. Add that onto it. And they walked by foot. I mean, sometimes they talk about the Native Americans in this country that had to go on like a death march going from like Florida out west or, or going from, uh, you know, one place to another and how cruel that was. The Jews had to experience that same thing. So they went, they had to go through that death march and then after they, uh, after they are now in the land and everything's destroyed, their hope has got to be about totally gone. And Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, the prophets that, they, that were there, if they listened to them and they started to then, they all had a message of hope. There is a plan of restoration. There is a plan of return. There is a plan where God's going to honor his covenant. He's going to bring these nations together as one. And he himself is going to come down and be the king over all. Some of the things have occurred, but not all. They're still waiting. And they're still going through a lot of persecution and so forth. Jesus spoke of it. Paul spoke of it. Look at, uh, I think we already read, Ma no, Matthew 24. Um, there are two things, I don't know why I put that there, but there are two main themes when it comes to the book of Daniel. The first one is, is quite significant because that theme is the times of the Gentiles. Now, this is found primarily in the latter chapters of Daniel, although may, there may be a little bit in the first few chapters. But this is where Jesus says in Luke 21, if you want to turn over there, and it's fine with the light on. In uh, Luke 21 and verse 22, Luke 21, 22, he's talking here about the persecution. And this is this would this occurred in 70 AD where I'm going to pick up. He says in verse 20, when you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. That happened in 70 AD when the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem. Let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let them which are in the midst of it depart not in the midst of it, depart out. Let them that are in the countries enter therein too. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. For there shall be great distress in the land, and wrath upon the people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive unto all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles. And it was. And that's when the Jews were scattered all to the all over the world. But the last statement of that verse, 24b, says, until, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Jerusalem shall be trodden down to the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And Daniel spoke about this. And you can see by this chart that's up here, a little bit hard, I guess, to read, but Daniel saw in this vision and prophesied of a period of 70 weeks that was going to occur during this restoration period. Seven of the weeks came to pass when the period of Ezra and Nehemiah came in and the Jews were allowed to go back under Cyrus 
to their city and begin rebuilding. And then from there, you go through a period of 434 years, which is up until the Messiah, the prince, shall come, which is 79 weeks or periods of seven, which take you up to the time of Christ. The crucifixion occurs, and then you have the church age right here, which is a mystery. We're still waiting of that 70 weeks that Daniel said that needed to be accomplished before Israel would see her king rule and reign on the earth. 69 have been accomplished. There are seven. There's one more period of seven that is yet to be fulfilled. And the book of Revelation talks about that one more period of seven. A seven-year period of judgment that brings judgment on the nations and ushers in the return of Christ. So he spoke of that, and here's where we are right now. We're in this present church age. We are waiting until, he says, the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Well, in 1967, during the Six-Day War, Israel got Jerusalem back and sovereignly rules over Jerusalem. And so we're in that time period right now. Because Jerusalem now is in the hands of the Jews. It has not been that way since way back in the period of Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And so the fulfillment that Jesus talks about, uh, it's there in 1967. And so now we're, now we're waiting for that final period to occur. Verse 25 says, There will be signs in the sun, the moon, the stars, Upon the earth, distress of nations, perplexity of the sea, the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear, and for looking for those things which are coming upon the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, 1967 they began. Look up, lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. And then he gives unto them the parable of a fig tree, and when the fig trees begin to blossom, get ready. And that's what the stress has been. A great revival went through this country and around the world. That's We're products of it that began. And God is, is gathering himself together of people and preparing them. The, uh, the book of Jude talks about, or the book of... Um, First Peter talks about how that he's waiting for the precious, precious fruit of the earth. And I believe what he's waiting for is, is maturity and growth in his Christian church. But basically, Daniel gives this basic framework of all this to occur in Daniel 9, 24 through 27 without reading it. So one of the purposes or the themes of the book is the very fact that You've got a lot of end-time studies in there that apply, I believe, to us today. That's why you find the contemporary church of our day doesn't want to receive it. They just look at Israel as just being over in their land as a, a happen chance, feel sorry for Israel, let's let them into this land situation. And they continue on in their indoctrination and deception following man-made truths rather than the word of God. So the book's very important because it lays out that framework. And then secondly, the second most important thing about the book is the book gives us a great deal about, about Daniel as an individual, Daniel as a man. Daniel is like a latter period Joseph. Remember Joseph? 
how that he was a man very much like Enoch, a man after God's own heart, very faithful to the Lord. Daniel was a man that was very, very faithful to the Lord. The Bible says in uh, the book of Daniel 9, 23, 10, and verse 19 and 11, that he was highly esteemed of the Lord. He was a man that was greatly beloved of the Lord, and there are various different examples of this. If you go back to the book of Daniel, which we can draw lessons from. Let me give you just one lesson real quick, and then I think I'll wrap this up, and I'm going to pray about whether or not we should go on. We, I've taught on the book of Daniel in both of these themes to a great degree, but it might pay to mention some of those things again more in detail because Daniel was a man that had some real convictions and what he did was he took a stand for what was right. And that's what God wants of us. He, he does not want us to be lukewarm, wishy-washy, live in the gray. He wants you to find out what he says, not what your school says, not what your professors say, not what the newspaper says, not what the television says, but what does God say about a big variety of moral and ethical choices and decisions you got to make as a Christian. What does he say? And have it in your heart that since I made him the Lord and Savior of my life, if he has told me to, to live in a certain way, he wants you to be a Daniel, and he wants you to take that step to whereby no matter what the cost, you're going to choose to live what he wants you to live. You take, for example, in Daniel, Daniel chapter 1. Here you have a young man. It's estimated that he was 15 years old. He was of the royal lineage. The Jews say that he was a descendant of Hezekiah. That's Jewish tradition. There's no real scriptural uh, proof or background we can use of that, but that's the Jewish traditional position that Daniel was a man. And they Jews believe, for example, in what I've been talking about in regard to the book of Daniel too. They don't take this liberal denominational view that's been come up. We follow the same view as the Jews do when it comes to the book that Daniel wrote the book. But anyways, here's a teenage Jewish boy, 15 years old. He has now gotten through that 700-mile death march. And he is put into the royal court of Nebuchadnezzar, who could be a brutal king. He's put in his court, and he's one that is uh, going to become a eunuch. Let's start with Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem, and he besieged it. We've covered that. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands with part of the vessels of the house of God which he carried into the land of Shinar, which is a plain in Babylon, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasures of his God. And the king spoke unto Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel, of the king's seed, and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, well-favored, skillful in all wisdom, cunning in knowledge, and understanding science, and such as had the ability in them to stand in the king's palace to whom they might teach the learning of the tongue of the Chaldeans. So they basically wanted to take these young men. They were handsome. They were smart. 
very, they were of the cream of the crop, so to speak. And they were no doubt from a, loyal, from a royal background. And they brought them into this group of eunuchs. And you say, well, what's a eunuch? Well, a eunuch is a, a male servant that has been castrated. Or unless they had a gift of celibacy. But they basically were castrated so that they did not have the normal sexual desire for women. You say, well, why would they do that? Because they wanted them to be dedicated to the position that they were being put into. I mean, Paul in the New Testament talks about how that, that uh, men have a natural desire for women unless they have a gift. And he said he was one, Paul was one, that had a gift from God to whereby he was not concerned about a wife and children and family. He could devote his life wholly and completely to the things of the Lord. And he said, I wish that all men could be like me. He thought that was a blessing. But he said that's not the case, obviously, because procreation has to continue on. He was made that way by God, and some are. Others are made that way by men. And when you're made that way by men, which is what a eunuch is, the purpose is that they would be totally devoted, in this case, to serving King Nebuchadnezzar. And he would not be drawn away and enticed, you know, like Samson was, away from his, his calling by Delilah and other women. He'd be dedicated, of course, to the Lord. So, he, so they were made eunuchs, and... He's, he's now told, the head of this group says, from the king, verse 5, the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat, of wine which he drank, and so nourishing them for three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. You say it took three years to make them be uh, educated enough and fattened up enough and cleaned up enough to be presentable for the king. So what it says. I mean, when you think about that 700-mile death march, they probably, when they got into that household, they probably looked like some, something coming out of the Holocaust almost. Some of them didn't, a lot of them didn't make it. And he may have been in really bad condition. So they were to get them ready and prepared for uh, service to the king. It says, Now among these were the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Meshel, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. For he gave, Dan he gave unto Daniel the name of Belshazzar. And this is not Belshazzar, which is a second king. You've got three kings spoken in the book of Daniel. You've got Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and Darius. Darius is Medan-Persian, Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar are Babylon, and Belshazzar is probably the son of Nebuchadnezzar, or he was a king, but he was like a, still had to be in submission to Nebuchadnezzar, who was a great king, and Nebuchadnezzar is called a king of kings. I don't want to get into that, get all that right here. But anyways, you've got Daniel, and then Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mish. Mishael called a Meshach, and Azariah called a Bendigo. Meshach, <laughs> Daniel, Hananiah, Daniel, Meshach, Abednego. Oh, brother. Anyway, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself 
with the king's portion, with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. He had some convictions about food. Now, where did he get that conviction? Well, it was a conviction out of the Old Testament. God put restrictions of food on them on the law. I'll just read these things and mention them. The law said, for example, they were not allowed to drink food with blood in it. Deuteronomy 12, 23. I'll let you read the scriptures. No animal fat was used. That was all put in dedication to the Lord in the sacrificial ceremony. Um, no animals that were found dead. You couldn't eat roadkill. That would have really made the Beverly Hillbillies mad. No scavenger animals like vultures and eagles. Um, no organ meat was allowed. No water animals without scales like otters and catfish. Nothing better than fried otter, boy. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Anyways, it was okay for plant-eating animals that chewed the cud, part of the hoof, like cows and sheep, Deuteronomy 14.6. No crawling or flying insects except for locusts and beetles. I don't care for that either, but it was okay. Fruits, vegetables, eggs, grains, and so forth were all okay. Now, in the New Testament, if you look over to 1 Timothy 4.1, and this is a whole big study in itself, but these restrictions were removed. God was trying to teach them to stay away from the pagan nations that were around them and not blend into them. And so in the New Testament, he came along. And of course, this is the way the Bible works, is you have a lot of the letter of the law in the Old and then Jesus came along when he said that he didn't come to destroy but fulfill, fulfill the law. He gave the meaning of what was the purpose of the old. So you have in 1 Timothy 4.1, Now the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter days some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience served with a hot iron, and then he speaks about some of these things, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth, for every creature of God is good. That means catfish now is okay, and, well, he said every creature. I'm not one to go looking around for an otter to skin and eat. I just made that point. Nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving because it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. But you can't just take that scripture either. There are a lot of others. If you look at 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12, and this is a whole study in itself on Christian liberty that I don't want to get into. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, even though we may be able to free, we may be free to eat all things, doesn't mean that it's smart to eat all things. Okay, I mean, you know, if you, the older you get, the more you realize you can't eat much sugar. Your body can't handle it. It's not working like it did when you were a kid. When you were a kid, you could pump the sugar into the kids that had all that energy. They'd burn them off. Your body was producing things to take care of it. When you get older, things don't work like that anymore. And the Bible says that's going to happen. So you have to learn not to do what you did when you were young. And so there's some wisdom that's applied. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12 talks about the principle of expediency, which is the lesson 
that needs to be brought in to bring that in. Paul's talking here about foods. He says, all things are lawful unto me, but not all things are expedient. All, all things are lawful to me, but I'll not be brought under the power of any. Meats for the belly and the belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body's not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And, and it's the same principle. So he makes that statement where he says all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. And expedient is wisdom. And there's a lot of things that you just need to use some wisdom and common sense on. You say, wow, that, that means you can have all different kinds of opinions. Yeah, you probably do. And so it has to be a personal choice. It's a personal thing. In fact, Romans 14 addresses that very issue, especially on foods. You're going to find some people think this is okay to eat and this is not okay to eat, and on and on. And so what do you do? Well, you don't try to cram your beliefs on people. You let them, you can share with them what you believe, but if they don't receive it, that's up to them. I mean, let's face it. Some people, you know, there are certain foods I like, some people don't like. Right? You know, I've had the grandkids over, and, and Bev might make something. You know, she cooks it. Somebody looks at it and says, I don't, I don't like that. You'd at least like them to try it. You know, but, you know, I don't like that. And you say, well, do you eat everything your wife sets in front of you? Of course. Wouldn't that be a stupid thing to say, I'm not going to eat that, hon? I'm going to live with her. <laughs> I'm trying to be funny. Romans 14, he's talking some things here. He says, verse 5, One man esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regards the day regards it unto the Lord, and he that regards not the day to the Lord, he doesn't regard it. He that eats, eats to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not and giveth God thanks. For no man, for none of us lives to himself, and no man dies to himself. Whether we live or die unto the Lord, we are, we are the Lord's. Well, I don't want to get into that subject, because I'll get way off Daniel. But you establish your own beliefs and follows. You want to follow that? That's fine. That's totally up to you. That you're, you, you'll have, you, that's between you and the Lord. Daniel, though, had convictions that were not personal convictions. This wasn't something where Daniel didn't say, well, you know, I just can't stand red meat. I just can't stand wine. I just can't stand whatever might have been set before you. And so he was stubborn with the head of the eunuchs and said, I'm not going to eat that stuff. That wasn't the attitude that was here. Daniel had a deeper understanding. He knew that God had put those laws in the Old Testament for a reason. I've got some of these reasons up, up at the board. It says some of them were his only, like first fruits, like the blood and the fat and things in the harvest. Uh, some were to avoid that which was defiled, like the red heifer and other things. In, you could get into the idolatry. Paul addresses that in the New Testament and, and says that he's free to eat meat sacrificed to an idol because he knows idols are nothing. So he's free to eat meat sacrificed to an idol. But he said, you know, like the meat markets were open. So if he and another Christian went to the meat market and he was buying a chunk of meat to eat, 
He said, I'm, I can eat it. I don't care if it was used in a pagan service. But my friend here is like Daniel. He's thinking Old Testament things. He's a Jew that's just a young Christian. If he says, Paul, don't you know that was sacrificed to an idol? Paul says, I won't eat it for his sake. Nothing wrong with the meat, but I don't want to mess with his conscience. And that's what he brings up about not all things are expedient or wise. And God's testing, God tests people with food in the area like he did in the garden. Wasn't it interesting of all the things that could be mentioned? God said, don't eat of a fruit. So the, the point is, and I'd like to wrap this up, is that basically he had a commitment. He made a commitment that he was going to follow after what God had said in his word, and he was not going to deviate from that and change. Let me summarize this up real quick because I've gone my time. You, need, you and I need to get make convictions about things that God has said in his word. we got a lot of young people here this morning, for example. You're going to find as you go to your public schools and so forth, doesn't matter whether you're girls or boys, but it's going to become something like, like you know, that you'll start talking about dating and start talking about guys and start talking about girls and then sex comes in and girls start talking about guys and their sex and guys start talking about girls and sex and it goes back and forth between them. Now God says very plainly in Hebrews 13, he says that the marriage bed is undefiled. Sex in marriage is okay. Anything outside of marriage, it's not and you'll be judged for it. You'll be, you, you will be dealt for it. And it doesn't matter about what... Well, I know that today everybody thinks that it's okay to get involved in premarital sex. Everybody says uh, you ought to live together before you get married and have that as a trial marriage and all that other stuff. God's word, very plain on it, very plain that you'll be corrected and chastened and disciplined for that kind of behavior. It doesn't matter what the world says. Somebody says, well, nobody tries to live with abstinence today. That's not true. That's not true. I went to a wedding a few years ago, a family member of two Christians. And the young man and the young woman had declared that even though those burning desires were there to come together, they made a commitment to God that they were going to remain virgins till their honeymoon. And they did. It's because they made a commitment. They made a choice to do what was right. That's what Daniel did. He, did, he had it in his heart that God had established some things that were, were to be lived when it came to food. That's the choice that he made. It can be applied in principle a lot of other things. But people tend to put preferences on things rather than convictions. A preference is where you would prefer some things to be a certain way. But it just doesn't always work out that way, so sometimes you just have to compromise and go with the flow. It's that kind of attitude. I remember a, a story years ago, and it also applies currently in my family, but I remember reading a story of a Christian woman that worked for a pharmaceutical company as a quality control inspector. And some thing, what happens in a manufacturing environment is they're producing sometimes products by the hundreds and thousands depending upon what it is and this company was making syringes and her job was to go out and inspect 
these syringes as they were going through production and then put them through a series of tests and put the okay on it and the okay would determine whether or not that would that was the okay where the government then was happy with the regulations that they'd put upon it well i don't remember all the circumstances it's been a while but there were thousands if i remember right there were tens of thousands that were not okay by the standards that were set and so she would not approve she wouldn't put that okay on it and in a roundabout way, the higher-ups said to her, in essence, if you don't put that okay on those syringes, we're going to lose a lot of money, and I'm sure that you will, will have to be laid off. You know, they're not just going to come right out and say, do it or you're fired. They have ways of making it different. You know what I mean? But she knew that if she put the okay on that, that was her yes and Jesus said, make your yes mean yes and your no mean no. He, he didn't say anything about maybes. There were no maybes in Matthew 5. It's either yes or it's no, one or the other. And a white lie is just as much a sin as a black lie. There's no such thing as a Christian lie called a white lie. That's a deception of the devil. Jesus said that we were children of the truth and that we were to follow him and be truthful in all the things that we do. Satan is the father of lies. And so she was not going to say, yes, this big batch of syringes is okay, because it was not. So she refused to do it. Say, what happened to her? She's fired. She's let go. I don't remember the rest of the story, but God's well capable of giving her a better job. This kind of came up in a way with Bev here back some months ago because her her job is one to whereby uh, paperwork is sent to her that she has to look at and make sure all the dots and i's and t's are crossed so to speak for people that have said they took certain training and if they get that training then they're eligible for a raise and usually december is a bad month because people procrastinate on their training and wait till the end and they want that raise but if they haven't had the training they want somebody to overlook that and give them the raise anyways and so the supervisors begin to start complaining that you know people are getting too picky they they want them to just if if, if it was said on paper uh yes this person took this training and and it wasn't checked, or they didn't sign it. There are sign-in sheets and other things involved. In a roundabout way, in a meeting, Bev was told, why don't you just go ahead and do it anyways? Just sign it. And we talked about it a little bit. And like she said, supposing in a refinery they had a big fire, and a certain procedure was to be carried out when they had that fire. After the dust settles at that refinery, OSHA comes in and starts going through that refinery looking to see whether or not all the training and all the T's were crossed and I's dotted. And they find out that, well, John Doe over here didn't have this training. And they pull out the records and the records says John Doe had training. And John Doe says, I didn't, I didn't sign that. Well, who signed that? And then you trace it back. Well, Bev Green signed that. That's fraud. So... In this meeting with her boss and other people, she basically said, no, I'm not going to do that. And they, were, they didn't like it. And somebody piped up and said, you want her to go against her conscience. You want her to do what is wrong. 
People lie all the time. Politicians lie all the time. Nobody thinks anything about it. Daniel had some convictions, not preferences. You say, well, what would have happened had they not given him what? The rest of the story, of course, is that they gave him pulse, which and there's only used twice in the Bible, and it's right there in Daniel in the same chapter. It's vegetables, basically. There's a lot of opinions on what that was. But in any case, it was something that they ate, and it made them look. It gave them a lot better health. And I'm sure God was the one who was blessing there. And they had such great favor with them that Daniel, um, you know, he was just greatly blessed the Lord. That's the story. I can't get into all of it here. But he took a stand for what was right. And that's a valuable lesson in Daniel. Daniel took a stand when it came to prayer. Daniel took a stand when it came to food. Daniel took a stand when it came to different things. So did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And God honored their faith, and he wants us to do the same thing. The little book of Jude says, earnestly contend for the faith. In other words, resist the devil and stand up to him and take a stand for what is right. If all of the peers at school are saying to you young people, Oh, you psychiatrists have said you really need to get involved in premarital sex to get to know somebody as to whether or not you really want to love them and live with them and all that other nonsense. I wouldn't doubt psychiatrists did say that. I I got some psychiatrists I graduated with from high school and they've been married several times. They're the worst people you want to talk to about marriage. Yeah, yeah, they got all the brains from some professor that stood up and and people are like marshmallow heads in that if a professor says something, it just has to be right because the professor says it. I don't care what Jesus said. The professor said it. That makes it right. No, it doesn't. He's a man. She's a woman. Wheaton College just fired recently a woman and they were supposed to be a Christian college. Just fired a teacher recently. And then they had to bring her back and restore her. Because what she's teaching in the classroom is that Muslims and Christians, they all serve the same God. This is Wheaton. So no, you don't, just because some person says that something is okay because of blah, 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 it doesn't matter. Daniel didn't care about any of that. He wanted to know what did God say. And we got to be the same way. And that takes a lifetime of learning. But when you study and you learn and you hear God's word, you got to make a choice. Am I going to take and stand for what's right? Or I'm going to be like the majority of people with a herd mentality and be wishy-washy about my convictions and not stand firm and strong. God loves those that love him and that will be willing to stand for his word. Well, I've gone my limit. I apologize. Not really. But I'll be in prayer about whether or not to pick up some of these things again. Maybe we will. But I really want to move on. Father, bless the word to our hearts. I know I've planted some seeds about end time truths and about establishing convictions. I pray that the Holy Spirit would give me wisdom as to whether or not we build on these things again or go on and come back to them. 
And I pray that the seeds planted would just be thoughts in the hearts of all of us here, that as we're confronted with choices and decisions in our daily lives about what is right and what is wrong, that we don't come up with some kind of a do in Rome as the Romans do, follow the middle of the road gray mentality, but that we've got to establish some principles in our heart of what you've said is right and other things that are wrong. And these are personal convictions, not shoving them on anybody else, but we've got to take and stand on our own, to stand up for what is right. We ask you to take that seed, let it grow in our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Went a little long. I'm sorry. God bless.